Amen. Good morning and welcome. It's good to see everyone this morning. And uh, what, what a blessing it is to just be able to assemble together in the Lord's house and still rejoicing and praising the Lord for uh, the wonderful day that he gave us on last week. Uh, and so not just with, uh, with uh, the great attendance, but also with uh, folks coming and, and having a heart, as we've already talked about, to, to find the Lord and to grow. Uh, and so and that's always a blessing. And so one of the things that uh, I personally as a pastor struggle with that I think is something that's helpful for the church. I can see the value in, uh, in preaching, especially on Sunday morning, series of messages that kind of are targeted to specific uh, things uh, that we have need of. Um, but I, I've, I've always kind of struggled with that. But occasionally, uh, the Lord helps me with that particular issue. Uh, and so most churches, or most pastors that are good at that, uh, go away for a week or two every couple times a year and just get alone with the Lord and, uh, and, and focus on pre-planning messages way out in advance. And so uh, I've not really been able to do that. And so uh, occasionally, though, the Lord will speak to me. And I was out, uh, it was praying. Friend day was coming. Friend day is just a really unconventional day for us this year. Uh, and just the way that it all developed and kind of the way that we could promote it and uh, different things. It was just abnormal, like everything else has been this year. Uh, and so I'm praying about, Lord, what after the, I knew what I needed to preach on that day and God had given me clear direction. And so a couple of weeks out, I'm praying, Lord, what about after? You know, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to come that are going to be here because, the, you know, the, prayerfully they're, they're searching for something more. What is it that you'd have me to do? And uh, I typically several days a week will take long walks or jog a little bit in my neighborhood and and I was out one day and praying and uh, walking and, and the Lord just brought the concept or the thought to me, why church? And so, you know, when we get into the message this morning that really for the next three Sundays, we're going to examine uh, this thought. Typically when I preach, it's more expositional. Uh, meaning that I take one passage of scripture and just deal a lot with that one passage. Uh, today or the next three weeks are going to be a little bit more topical. And so we're going to look at a lot more scripture as far as variety in different books. Uh, we are, depending on how things go time-wise, I may or may not have time to turn to every passage. So I challenge you this morning, if you're keeping notes, to write down those references so that you've got time to go back and look at some of those things as we, uh, as we move ahead. But, uh, but I think it's important for us to, as a church body, be reminded of why this is important. Uh, and if you're someone that's typically not a faithful attender of church, why, uh, why bother? Why go through the effort? Why go through the motions? Why, what is it that we're supposed to do and to get? Uh, and so I want to attempt with Lord's help over these next three Sundays not to exhaustively explore that, but at least to uh, cover some of the basic things that I think that uh, maybe the, thinking about it a little bit differently that I see that God uh, clearly gives us uh, and what God's intention is for uh, the church. The church is something that people feel strongly about one way or the other. Uh, and so, but it is something that was given by God and it's something that's, that is uh, built by the Lord. Uh, it's not something that's really a part of man. And we'll touch on some of those things this morning. So if you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter number 16. Matthew chapter number 16, and this will be familiar to most of you, uh, and we will, you know, launch from here, and a lot of what's structured is going to be uh, from this passage, uh, and so, and then expand it upon. And so, uh, why church? Why is it important, Pastor? What's the, what's the big deal? Uh, and I would say, just as we start off this morning, that uh, as we look at this text, that what you're going to see is that the church is something that was special to the Lord in, in and of itself, that should make it special to us. Uh, but in verse number 13, the Bible here says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some Elias, uh, meaning Elijah, or others Jeremiah, meaning Jeremiah the prophets, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose in the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. 
And I want to speak to you this morning on the thought uh, about why church. The church is a gift from God. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for, again, the opportunity that we have to come together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd meet with us as you promised in your word that when we gather in your name that you'll be here. Uh, Lord, we're counting on you. We're depending upon you to open and to speak to our hearts. Lord, we're praying that you'll communicate with us during this hour. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would have great freedom and liberty uh, to bring conviction and to show us and to confirm for us the truth that we hear. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be open in our hearts and to be responsive to what you have for us today. In Jesus' name and amen. <clears throat> so we look here and Jesus asks his disciples the, the question, hey, hey guys, who does everybody say that I am? You know, it's like you're going along and if you just were kind of uh, to go out today and take a poll uh, and, you know, it, it seems to be the season for taking polls, right? Uh, and so go to some college campus or go to a high school campus or go to the mall or go wherever people are congregate, congregated and say, hey, who do you think Jesus is? What do you think about Jesus? You're going to get all kinds of different answers because people are going to think a lot of different things. And in this time, that's essentially what Jesus is asking his disciples. Hey, guys, you've been with me. We've been doing, I've been doing miracles. Uh, I have been preaching. I've been teaching. Uh, and we've been really expressing an entire different way of, uh, of living in the Christian life as opposed to the Judaism or the pagan worship of the Romans and the Greeks. Uh, who, do, who does everybody, how are they responding? How are they taking the, the message? Who do they say that I am? And so they looked at him and they said, well, Lord, some people say that you're Elijah. You know, you call fire down from heaven and consume the prophets of Baal. Uh, and some say that you're Jeremiah. Uh, you know, you're, you're preaching and you're sounding out a warning, but no one responding. And then others say that you're John the Baptist. You're uh, Elijah back from the dead. And so uh, there's a wide variety of their response and, uh, and how they are uh, embracing him. And then he turns the question to them. And I really, Jesus' intent in the first question was really to set up the second question. He knew what everybody was saying about him. He knew how people were responding. He knew what was going on. He knew people were believing and some were not believing. And that's always the case. Uh, but he, he was really leading. It's a leading question to the disciples. And the question that he really wants to ask is, now who do you guys say that I am? Those of you that are here, those of you that are engaged, those of you that have personal access to me, who do you say that I am. And of course, Peter famously answers that we believe that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus commends him and says, you're blessed. God has revealed that to you. And then <clears throat> he goes on to say uh, that, that thou art Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now he tells them in the verse before, blessed that you, thou art, uh, it's not been revealed to you. And the verse before that, or, or Jesus comes to him and says, listen, uh, you know, you're, you're just this little stone, Peter. He's not, he's not, and listen, then this is an important point because an entire religion has been established and promoted around the world uh, throughout the, this age that's based upon the idea that Peter is whom Jesus built a church. That, that Peter is the one that was the focal point of the church. And uh, that is so contradictory to everything in the scripture. Jesus is the focal point of the church. And so when he comes to him and he says, uh, you know, you are Cephas. He's saying you are a little pebble. And I am uh, the, the rock. I am the boulder upon which uh, this will be built upon which my church will be built and uh, and so you know you, you go someplace and you see these big massive stones in different places and uh, you know Peter Jesus is saying Peter I'm not going to build my church on uh, on a man I'm not going to build it on an individual I'm not going to build it on some uh, little stone though you're important uh, I, you're not big enough for me to build this upon I'm going to build it upon myself and so the church is built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not, shall not prevail against it. They're certainly going to rage against it, uh, but it will not prevail against it. And so when we consider uh, the fact that Jesus has stated that I will build my church, that I am 
uh, the one that's going to do the work, then uh, we have to understand some other things that, uh, that he said about the church as well to begin to understand its significance and importance. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, in verse number 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He gave himself for the church. Understand the implication here and what that means. He, he took upon the sins of all humanity for throughout all the ages and he paid the price. He bore the punishment that was intended for every individual. That's the church. The church is made up of the cold out body of believers. That's what the word church means. Ecclesia, it's an assembled body of believers. And so uh, he says, I love the church and I gave myself uh, for it. In Matthew uh, chapter 16 in verse 18 uh, in our text, uh, upon this rock I will build my church. And then in Acts chapter number 2 and uh, verse number 47 he said, or 46 and 7 and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart praising God and having favor with all people and the Lord added unto the church daily such as should be saved and so we consider this morning uh, that the church is a sacrificial gift from God he gave himself for it. We consider this morning that the church is a supernatural gift. Jesus builds it. Jesus adds to it. Listen, that's a, a lot of people today, a lot of young men coming out of Bible college, a lot of pastors, even some that are getting up in my age and beyond, talk about the church that they've built, or I'm going to go and build a church, or I'm going to go and, and it's a noble intent, it's a noble gesture, but the reality is, biblically speaking, is that I cannot build anything other than a mob. Jesus builds a church. I can lead someone. I have, I've, a lot of times people over the years, I'll go someplace and they'll come up and they'll say, yeah, that person's important to me because they saved me. What they mean is that person shared with me how to be saved, how to find forgiveness of sin, uh, but it's Jesus that did the saving. Uh, all we can do is present truth. It is the supernatural act of God that saves a soul. And it is the supernatural act of God that builds a life. And the supernatural act of God that builds a church. Uh, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Not only that, it's a sacred gift. And we go back to Ephesians chapter 5. In verse uh, 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And then he tells us what his intent is, that he may sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. In other words, he's saying, I understand that the church in its early form here is not pure. In other words, uh, there, there's, it's not perfect. I've assembled those that have trusted me as Savior. I've called them out to the church and I am working on them. And thank God that we're all just works in progress. None of us have arrived and he's not done with us and he's not given up on us. He's working through the word of God. And the word of God is signified in the Bible by water. And here he equates it to that when he says sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The word of God is the water by which we're washed. It shows us, it cleanses us. It, uh, as the Holy Spirit works in us, it purifies us. Why? Verse 27. That he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it, it should be holy and without blemish. And so he wants to present a purified, beautiful, perfect bride to himself when he returns for the church and calls us up to meet him in the air. That is what he's working toward and we're a part of that process along the way. And so we see the church is a sacrificial gift. It's a supernatural gift, but it's also a sacred gift. If it's that special to Christ, it should be that special to us. It should be something that we, uh, that we cling to, that we abide in. And so it brings the question again, why church? Why, uh, or better yet, why is church important and why do I need it? Uh, what is it that it wants to, that God's doing in my life as a result of it? Because the truth is this morning that many people see the church as a cult. If you go and you look at people in the world, they just say, well, uh, you know, the church is just indoctrinating or doing this. Listen, every entity out there is indoctrinating. Amen. That's, what, that's what education systems do. That's what militaries do. That's what, uh, that's what uh, churches do. We want to pass to the next generation our values and beliefs. That's called 
Indoctrination. That's, that's not a bad thing if you're indoctrinating someone with Bible truth. It's bad when people are indoctrinated with falsehood. And that's the, the way the world looks at it. They look at uh, what, we, uh, what we are indoctrinating with is something that is not right or something that, and, it, and it's contrary. It is contrary to the system in the world. It's contrary to their value system. It's contrary to their morals. It's contrary uh, to their integrity. Uh, and it should be because it's representative of God. And so, But to a lot of people, it's just a cult. To some, it's obsolete. Listen, the church is not obsolete. My Bible is not obsolete. And the world has embraced this idea of, hey, uh, the Bible's obsolete. We need to rewrite it. We need to dumb it down. We need to make it more simple. Uh, or churches have gone to the point where they uh, want to dumb down worship and, uh, and just uh, make it look like a concert. And uh, the pastor wants to come out in his ripped jeans and t-shirt and sit on a stool uh, and proudly proclaim, uh, well, I'm sorry, pal, but you lost my interest the minute that you stepped out. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be uh, judgmental or harsh. I'm trying to say that what God has and what God has for me is a sacred thing. And, and if it's a sacred thing, it ought to be presented, uh, it ought to be presented in, a, in a professional manner, in a credible manner. Hey, listen, if the president was coming out tonight to announce that, uh, that we were going to war with uh, China or some other nation, uh, and, and he did so uh, looking all uh, unkept and untidy, uh, it demeans the message. If the message is valuable, then the message should be presented in a valuable context. And I'm not saying that there aren't forums in which it's more appropriate maybe to, you know, if I'm preaching to a group of teenagers at a youth rally, I'll probably be in jeans and a polo. Uh, I'll be appropriate to the event. But this is not a youth rally. This is not camp. This is not a, uh, a bonfire. Uh, this is the church of the living God. And when we come before him, we need a pure book and we need a pure worship and we need to realize that what God gave us just because it may not resonate with what the world wants is not obsolete, but God is working in it. To others, it's just an obstacle. To others, it's something that's just in the way of them getting what they want. Watch the Supreme Court battle. And what you're going to find is that they're going to attack a woman that has strong religious beliefs. Uh, because those strong religious beliefs, and I don't agree with her religious beliefs. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that she has decent moral values. Uh, and she will be attacked relentlessly because she is an obstacle to tearing down the, the moral code of the United States. It's just a reality. To some, it's an obstacle. To some, it's an, ob it's an organization for community service. A lot of people come to churches these days because they just want an avenue to be able to serve the community. They just want to have a, they want to stand in a line at the soup kitchen. They want to have a way to, uh, and listen, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm saying, you know, as we can uh, do things and serve the community, that's a wonderful avenue uh, to express Christ. I'm not against that, but, but it's, the reality is, is that to some people, that's the only reason that they come. They're just looking for uh, a way to have a way to, to serve and to do that and uh, to feel better about who they are and what they do. For some, it's a place that they can come uh, to network their business. For others, it's a place that they can come uh, to appease their conscience, not feel that feel like, hey, if I can, if, if I'm a churchgoer, listen to uh, eulogies and things at funerals sometimes. They'll talk about how good someone was because they were a churchgoer. Listen, going to church doesn't make me good. It doesn't hurt, but it doesn't make me good. Just because someone comes to church doesn't mean that they're honest and that, they're, uh, that they live a holy life and that they're uh, Christ-centered in their thinking. Some believers see the church as a place to hang out. Now, there are a lot of times when you get into groups within the church and it's just, it's just a hangout. I remember there was a time uh, in our youth group that we had a lot of kids that rode uh, in the vans and the bus. And that's a good thing. I'm not against that. But uh, it became apparent, not all of them, but, uh, but some of them were only coming because uh, there were groups that were friends from uh, earlier in life. And they went to three different high schools. And this was just a convenient place that they could get free transportation to to come and hang out with their friends that they didn't get to see at school every day. They weren't really interested in what they could get spiritually. They weren't interested in what they could get from the Lord. But they were given an opportunity. But for some, it's just a, uh, it's just a place to hang out. For some, it's a place to catch up or to spread the latest gossip. For some, it's a place to feel better about themselves. For some, the church is a place to see uh, that they see it as corrupt 
and thus unnecessary to their personal relationship with the Savior because they look and they evaluate the corruption within the church uh, as an excuse for them to not attend or to not participate uh, or to not, uh, listen, go to church for very long anywhere and you are going to be let down by people because we are all a work in progress and we all have sin in our life. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But this is an important point for this reason uh, is because we kind of look at the church sometimes today and we go back and we look at, well, the church failed me here. Someone in the church leadership hurt me here. Somebody did this. So because of that, uh, then that's tainted my view of church. That's tainted my commitment to the church. That's tainted my... Uh, may I point out to you this morning that the corruption within the church has been in the church since Jesus founded the church. Read the New Testament and read it honestly. And don't look at just what the church has become today. Consider the fact that the church was corrupt at its inception. The entire books of 1 and 2 Corinthians are written strictly to rebuke the church and the, the, and the fallacy or the false teaching and the false practices of faith uh, that it established in the church. You'll see tonight when we begin our study through 1 Timothy uh, that, that Paul sent... Timothy to be the pastor at Ephesus to correct false teaching merely six years after he wrote the book of Ephesians and at the time the church at Ephesus was considered to be one of the strongest churches that was in the New Testament. Read Revelation where he addresses the seven churches. Don't think and don't tell me this morning that the church has gotten so corrupt that it's of no value and that it has no authority and that God is not working because, my friends, the church has been corrupt since the beginning. Say, so, Pastor, why did Jesus give it? Because the corruption of man does not excuse the intent and the, and the plan of God in it. And in spite of its difficulties, in spite of uh, the fact that there's things about it that uh, that could be better and that have to be overcome that's why he said in Ephesians that uh, that he is uh, that he is uh, washing and cleansing with his word I want you to notice what that in mind as Paul addresses Timothy in first Timothy in chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15 these things that I write I unto thee hoping to come unto thee shortly He's correcting false teaching. He's given the, the, the qualifications of uh, officers in the church. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church. Get that? There's a lot of people that don't like for the pastor to get up and say, uh, this is the house of God. But Paul called it the house of God to Timothy. And I get it that in the Old Testament it referred to the temple and the tabernacle. And I understand fully that the Holy Spirit indwells me as an individual. But it is not me as an individual uh, that has authority as a Christian. It is the church that has authority over the lives of its members as, a, as an entity. And it is, uh, it is the leadership of the church that God has tasked with seeing that through. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God which is the church. The church is ecclesia. It is the called out assembly of believers there's no other way to define it and Paul to Timothy states that it is the church of the living God notice what he says next the pillar and the ground of truth the pillar and the ground of truth the church is the pillar and the ground of truth as stated by the apostle Paul to Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God and so for those that would say, well, pastor, the church has got this problem and that problem. Listen, I understand that churches at times have problems. I'm not excusing the problems. I'm not excusing the sin. I'm not saying that, that something or a particular entity could get so corrupt that I might feel that I need to be somewhere else if problems can't be resolved. But, that, but to get to a place where I just say, I'm going to wash my hands of the church, I can't follow the teachings of scripture and, and think and believe and convince myself that I'm gladly and, 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 and functionally and fully serving God when I ignore and reject what God has plainly said about the church in his word. It is the pillar in the ground of church. Uh, listen, the word ground in scripture, it's just like in spiritual warfare when he talked about not giving ground to the devil. Ground means legal jurisdiction. And the word ground means that God has given legal jurisdiction, legal authority to the church. Jesus Christ is the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Then turned around and said, but the church is the pillar and the ground of that truth. Amen. 
And when we look and we understand the importance of the church, we cannot deny the fact that God uses the church to work in lives. Harold Percy said that people move to move toward the church do so for two major reasons. To learn about God and to find guidance and direction for living. Where's that guidance and direction come from? Well, ultimately it comes from the Word of God, but it comes through the leadership of the church, teaching, guiding, directing. Believers understand that the church is God's. This is not my church, it's not your church, it is God's church. It is His house. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. It is a place for worship. It is a place for conviction. Conviction meaning it's a place where my sin is confronted. God intends for this church, for His church, uh, and for its, re its replicas across the world where God has called local assemblies out uh, to worship Him and serve Him and has given that authority to the church. Uh, it comes to the point that it is a place where we will be confronted and convicted about our sin. It is a place of instruction. It is a place where we should be inspired. It is a place that should be our hub of service. Listen, it's dangerous to get out and to just go and do our own thing out in the world uh, in the name of Christ without any governance from the church. I'm not saying uh, that everything has to be done by the church, but listen, uh, if you're going to go out and uh, start ministries, then ministries in the New Testament were started through the authority of the local church. When we come and we see uh, that it is a place that should be the hub of our service. Why church? Why is it important to me? Well, it should be important because it's a gift from God and it should be, uh, we should realize that if it's important to him, it should be important to us. When we look here this morning, I want to point out basically four primary things that I think that we can understand about this gift that God has given us uh, in his word here. Uh, first, I would say this morning that the church is God's gift of compassion. God's gift of compassion. Now, when we think about compassion, what we think about in our modern age is pity. We think about just, uh, oh, I feel sorry for them. We feel, if, if, I, if I can empathize a little bit, I don't necessarily have to engage uh, to do anything about it. That's, that's, I'm, I'm compassionate. Uh, if someone that's soft-hearted to the plight of someone uh, is considered to be compassionate. But real compassion uh, is a gift from God. And, and two things about compassion this morning, and the first one is this, is that compassion confronts real problems. A genuine compassion confronts real problems. So, Pastor, what do you mean? Whenever people go and, and you come and confront me about something, that that's a problem? Well, I'm not talking about uh, compassion being, uh, you know, hey, uh, you know, you did this that was wrong and I'm confronting you about that. That's not the, conf the method of conf confrontation. Though certainly it is a method of confrontation that I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, biblically here. Look at Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at about three or four. I'm going to move here very quickly. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. And so uh, he looks here and he sees uh, a, a problem. In chapter 14 of Matthew, we're going to look at all these are going to be here uh, in the book of Matthew. Chapter 14 and verse number 14. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and healed their sick. In chapter 18 uh, and verse number 27, uh, he comes and he says this, uh, and he's given a parable here, uh, that the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and for gave him uh, the debt in Matthew 20 and verse number 34 uh, he says here so Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him what I'm talking about here when we talk about confront compassion confronting real problems is that Jesus when he expresses compassion saw a real problem they're hungry they're confused. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, they're blind or they're maimed or this one's dead and he's going to raise them to life. Jesus looked and he saw beyond the obvious to the heart of the real issue. So what are the issues within the church today? Well, the issues of the church are the issues of, our, of, of us as individuals as we collectively make up the body of the church. I would say first of all this morning that we have a sin problem. What's our problem? It's a sin problem. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, but the wages of sin is death. We have a problem and that problem is sin. And everything in the earth that is problematic 
uh, that is uh, that is destroying the fabric of uh, communicating the message that God has given is a sin problem. I'm glad that that verse doesn't end there. That he goes on and says, but, it, but the eternal life is the gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank God that he said, yeah, you've got a problem with sin, uh, but, uh, but I have uh, something more to that. Not only do we have a sin problem as that, that we needed Jesus to be saved, but even as a Christian, uh, as is evidenced throughout the problems in the church, that even after I've trusted Christ as my Savior and become his child, and the Bible says that we're born again, we're born into his family, I have to come to the realization that in my personal life, uh, I still struggle with the effects of sin in my life. I st every Christian still sins. That sin, even before you committed it, as regards to your salvation, has already been paid for and forgiven. But in regards to your fellowship with your Father in heaven, uh, that sin still needs to be dealt with. It tears down the relationship. Sin tears down our relationship with God. It, it limits God's ability to bless and to hear an answered prayer. Well, Pastor, I'm, I've been coming to church a long time, and God, man, compared to the way I used to be, uh, I'm, I'm a lot better person than I used to be. I'm not hardly a sinner anymore. Some people will even believe that they reach a place where they don't sin anymore. Uh, but the Bible says that if we say that we have no, no sin, uh, and we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. And in verse 9, he follows it up and says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what's he saying? He's saying, listen, you've got a problem this morning, and your problem is sin. The problems that Jesus dealt with, their confusion and their hunger and their blindness, they were all the result of sin. I'm not saying sin in the individual person's life. I'm saying the effects of sin upon the earth causes that affliction. We have a sin problem. Not only do we have a sin problem, but we have a self problem. Most people, if we could master or at least rein in the sin in our life, uh, and one of which is self and the driving force is self, uh, then we would be far, much farther along in our Christian growth and development. In Romans chapter 7, if the Apostle Paul struggled with it, then none of us can, can, should be able to think that we won't struggle with it. Paul said, for that which I do... In chapter 7 of Romans in verse 15 and following, that which I do, I allow not. For that I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. In other words, uh, I, I hate that. I don't want to do it, but I find myself doing it. And I want to do this over here because it's the right thing to do. And that's my intent is to do it. But at the end of the day, I, I don't get it done. And then he continues, he says, if I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. In other words, I do these things because I have sin in me. And sin, if I allow it to, takes control. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil that I would not, that I do. And he's saying, listen, I know right, I know wrong, I know what I should do, but the flesh just wins out. And what I'm saying is that God, through the church, in his, uh, in his wisdom, has given us a church that is a place of compassion, but real, genuine compassion confronts the problem. And the problem is not that I'm uh, all twisted off and in a knot over here dealing with some issue. The problem is that I have sin in my life that I love and that I embrace and that I will not turn from. The problem is that my heart's in rebellion to God. The problem is, is that I cannot, uh, I cannot bring myself to surrendering to him. But Jesus didn't stop there uh, because compassion not only confronts real problems, but compassion provides real solutions. And I'm glad this morning that through the word of God and as it's preached and as it's taught from his, through his church that I see that yes, I have a real problem but I also understand that Jesus has provided me a real solution. Listen, there's a solution to our sin and that solution is Jesus Christ. Amen. And he paid for that sin on Calvary's cross and he became our sin and he endured the cross uh, despising the shame so that we could be changed into the image of Christ. Compassion provides real solutions. How is that pastor well first consider uh, that, that we need to be Christ focused and not self focused and, and listen honestly this morning you can't just wake up and decide to do that Jesus the Holy Spirit has to be within you 
And when we consider the truth uh, of God's word in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, he says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. In other words, with the moment that I truly trust Christ as my Savior, there is a new me. There is a new life in me. The Holy Spirit is living and indwelling in me and begins to build and change who I am and how I think. And the reality is, is that part of the solution that I get from Christ at salvation is that I become focused upon Him and not focused upon self. And the problem in almost all of our relationships and all of our moving forward for the glory of God comes when we are so self-focused that we cannot get our eyes off of, uh, of self and we are focused strictly on, uh, our, and we can't bring ourselves to trust in God. But he said he'll make all things new. The second thing we see here is that in providing of real solutions that I have to allow the Lord to help me see things as Jesus sees them and not through the eyes of my personal experience. When I see things through the eyes of personal experience, it taints what God can do. Let me explain what I mean here. We all need this morning in our Christian life a reset button. Because the truth is, is that if you've been out in the world or you've been in church any time at all, then you've made yourself vulnerable to the things of the gospel and truth, then there are going to be people that will hurt you. And sometimes the people that hurt you the most are the people that you trusted the most. And that's true both directions. No matter what side of the pulpit you stand on or sit on, it's true both ways. And so it becomes easy when you've been in multiple churches, and I've been in churches where a lot of people have been hurt as well. It's easy to just not trust leadership or to not make yourself vulnerable. Or the first time that leadership makes some kind of a mistake, even if that mistake is corrected, well, they made a mistake, so I don't trust them anymore. From this side of the pulpit, you look at people when they come in and you say, well, uh, you know, I see this, this person coming in uh, and I know from past experience that people that come from where that guy's coming from or where that lady's coming from are nothing but trouble. We look and they've got, a, you know, big sin in their background or they've got a, a reputation that they've established well uh, from church to church or they've got uh, all kinds of different issues that are coming in. And, and even if 90% of the right time, Brother Buck, my assessment is correct and being like, you know, I really just don't want to bother with this because it's not going to cause me anything but grief. I don't know that. I can't view them through the eyes of my personal experience because Jesus doesn't. I need to reset my thinking. I need to see people the way Jesus sees them. Every person that walks in those doors, is there's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to break their heart. Every person that comes in, there's an opportunity for God to change their life. I don't want to minimize God's ability to change a life because I have predisposed my opinion about somebody before I even know them. Just based on past experience. We must see through the eyes of the Lord rather than the eyes of our own personal experience. Mark Wilson said that a church's vitality is not measured by how many people fill the pews, but rather by how much those people are filled with Jesus. And when we get self out of the way and we get our sin dealt with, then we create a place where Jesus consumes our heart and he makes everything new. He restores and he brings and puts broken things back together and he reestablishes uh, our walk in Christ and he causes us to go from being someone that is of no value and broken uh, and unable to function to be a functioning uh, and, and valuable part of what he's trying to accomplish in the community that he's placed us in. The church is a gift of great compassion, realizing that compassion confronts real problems and compassion then provides real solutions. I'm glad that I have the solution to every problem in my life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know, I can reject that solution, but I cannot deny that solution. The solution is there if I'll partake. Secondly, this morning we see not only is the church a gift of compassion, but the church is God's gift of conviction. When we talk about conviction, we talk about uh, the ministering of the Holy Spirit in John uh, chapter number 16 and verses 7 through 11. John's gospel uh, chapter number 16 and verses 7 through 11. 
uh, we see clearly uh, that he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you or to your advantage that I go away. Jesus speaking to the disciples. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. Capital C, it's the Holy Spirit. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And what I'm saying here this morning is that God through his church gives us the gift of conviction. He convicts our conduct. And I'm not talking about being in a, the type of an atmosphere uh, where the pastor or the Sunday school teacher gets up and just guilt trips people to make a decision. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not a real solution. That does, that's coercion. What we're talking about is an open heart to the Word of God as the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God preached that it brings us to a place uh, where we are convicted of our sin and that affects our attitudes and our actions. When I was in the military, sometimes you would see somebody uh, go out and they would do something really dumb and they would come back and they would get charged with, uh, with conduct unbecoming. And the higher the rank, the greater the expectation. And they would be charged with conduct unbecoming. I wonder this morning how many of us could be charged with conduct unbecoming a Christian. How many of us uh, do not represent him well because of the sin that's in our life and we uh, are not convicted about what uh, God is trying to do in our life? In 1 Timothy chapter number 4 and verse 16 he says, Take heed to thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, uh, that uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, uh, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. What I'm saying this morning is that every Christian has to come to the place where we realize that God's gift of conviction is working in us and our attitudes and our actions should be impacted uh, and changed in course of time by the by the submitting of our hearts to God's convicting power as the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Ron Smith said there was a time when people went to church, heard the truth, and wept over their sins. Today, people go to church, hear a motivational speech, and ignore their sins. Or excuse their sins. Or blame shift their sins. What we have to realize is that sin is a destructive force within the life of a Christian and within the body of a church. And the Holy Spirit of God gives us the gift of convicting that sin so that it can be corrected so that the church stays healthy and productive. What kind of a doctor would it be if he had the cure for the disease that you have if he would not give it to you? What kind of a God would he be if he, knowing the cure for our sin, refused to give it to us? He hasn't refused. He convicts us of our sin. And he leads us to repentance. And the Bible tells us the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. He gives us the conviction of conduct and correcting our sins. Not only that, but he gives us convictions to live by. Every Christian should live by biblical values and principles. Every Christian could be guided by the truth of the word of God. Listen, it doesn't blend with what's going on in the world. There's nothing about the Bible that is going to be acceptable to the people out in the world, especially not the people that you see uh, on, that are out burning cities down and that back them. What I'm saying is, is that we have to come to an understanding that God gives us Bible convictions to live by. Things that we know they're true in the Bible, whether I do it or don't, whether I accept it or not, it doesn't change, it is the Word of God. Thirdly, we see that the church is God's gift of correction. God's gift of correction. In other words, God loves me enough, uh, like a father that loves his child, that when I'm wrong, when I'm in error, uh, that he corrects me. In Ephesians chapter, uh, in Ephesians chapter number 4. We come and we uh, understand again as God through the church how he works and what he's doing. Uh, that we see that the church is authoritative in my life. The life of a Christian, and the life of a Christian, the church has authority. 
That doesn't mean that you've got to come and ask the pastor permission to, uh, to, to you know, what you're going to have for dinner or if you're going to buy a car or what you need to do. But it does mean that the church has uh, authority to, uh, to teach the truth and to uh, keep purity and unity within the church. And it says in verse 11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. He even tells you how long it's for till we all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That henceforth we know be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to, to deceive but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him and in all things which is the head even Christ from whom the body fitly joined together and compacted by that which, ha, which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that the church has the authority and the responsibility to preach holiness. Amen. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter number, uh, or 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Yes. And a church that does not stand up and proclaim that God is holy and that we are to be holy and that we are to be holy in our lives and how we live them and how we uh, represent Christ to the world around us uh, is to say, to say that the church doesn't have the right to do that is to not understand at all the teachings of what the church's authority is in the word of God. Not only does the church have a responsibility to preach holiness but the church has an obligation to confront sin. Matthew chapter number 18 whenever we uh, consider here that even Jesus early on in this uh, early exposition and introduction of the church uh, deals with, uh, in a very early setting, uh, church discipline. Verse, chapter 18 and verse 15, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take thee one or two more, and that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them uh, of my Father which is in heaven. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that the church has a responsibility to be unified. The leadership of the church has a responsibility to maintain that unity. And, uh, and whenever things are disjointed, then they have to be confronted. And and if things are confronted and the person will not repent and will not do right and they're causing harm and division within the church, then they have to be removed from the church. Not to be cruel, not to be ugly, but for the purity and the unity of the body of Christ. It is the responsibility or the obligation of the church to confront sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, and the first five verses are even more strongly, speak even more strongly to this. Uh, whenever he says uh, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 1 through 5, uh, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife, and ye are puffed up. Uh, and you have not rather mourned uh, that he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For verily as absent in body but present in spirit uh, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. And in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ when ye are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one uh, unto the Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Jesus. Remember what he said, if two of you agree and you it's bound on earth, it's bound in heaven. Amen. It's pretty harsh by our way of thinking today. It's the importance of the holiness of the body of Christ. And it is the responsibility and the obligation of the church, meaning the church and its leaders, not individual Christians to go be nitpicking amongst each other. 
It is when we come to realize that God has given us a gift of correction. And by the way, that young man that was put out to Satan for the destruction of his flesh in 1 Corinthians was later restored. That was the purpose. It wasn't to be cruel. It wasn't to be ugly. It wasn't to be harsh. It was restoration. How do you get to that point, Pastor? Well, it is the obligation to confront sin and it is the duty to purge rebellion. See, this happens when you go and you try to confront and correct and, and pride rebuffs. And then you go with, uh, with more and again, uh, pride and truth is rejected and rebuffed. It's a heart of rebellion to the working of God in the life. I know what I want and no, you're not going to stop me from getting it, Pastor. It doesn't matter that I'm wrong. It doesn't matter that what I'm doing is ungodly and unbiblical. It doesn't matter uh, that I perhaps have even twisted the truth of the scripture to make it, uh, to appease myself to getting what I want. The reality is, is that God's gift of correction is given through the church. Matthew chapter 18, again, verse 17, he, uh, he laid it out there when he said, And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Lastly, we see this morning that the church is not only the gift of God's compassion and a gift of conviction and a gift of correction, but it's a gift of commencement. The word commencement, we use a graduation time often. We like to uh, use it, but what it means simply is beginning. It's a place of beginnings. For that person that comes and is convicted of their sin and receives Christ's forgiveness over their sin as a Christian or as a, uh, as, a, as a lost man coming to Christ for the first time or as a backslidden Christian making their heart right with God. Submitting and surrendering to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Accepting the loving correction as it's given by the word of God and through uh, the, the spiritual leadership that God has placed in uh, an individual governing body of Christ. Uh, understand that the church then is God's gift of commencement. What do you mean, Pastor? I mean it is a place where we are to come to commence a new life. Consider 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, number 1 uh, in verses 8 through 10. Uh, when we see here uh, where he says, uh, For some of you, uh, or for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place place your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we need not to speak to anything for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come what's he saying he's saying this is a time of new beginning you allowed God to change you and then God worked in your life and your testimony to, to, to change someone else Listen, what do we see here? We see the commencement of a new life. When someone gives their heart to Christ, it's a brand new life. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Not only is it a commencement of a new life, but it's a commencement of a restored life. I'm glad that whenever God broke my heart and I'd been away from him for several years and I finally surrendered and repented of my sin and came back, that I found a place uh, where I could go and be restored. Restoration. The work of God. Again, uh, it is God confronting a problem and providing a solution for the problem. Restored life. It is the commencement of a service life. Every Christian's life should be about serving their God. And it, that service isn't going to look the same for everybody. Now, I wouldn't expect that someone that, like Brother Paul, that's in a wheelchair after suffering a stroke uh, almost two years ago now, uh, that, that he's going to go out and, uh, and get up and be knocking on people's door to tell them about the gospel. But that doesn't mean he can't serve God. So, Pastor, what could he possibly do? Well, he can pray. We need people, no matter what their walk of life, no matter what their age or physical condition or whatever their limitations are, to be actively serving their God. And the church is the hub of that service. The church is God's gift of commencement. The commencement of a new life, the commencement of a restored life, the commencement of a life of service, a service life. Why church, pastor? Because God gave it. Why church? Because in it, God's supernatural working changes lives. Because in it, God speaks to hearts. Listen, John Wesley said this way, he said, the church changes the, the, church changes the world, not by making converts, but by making disciples. You, you, we, can have, we can make converts until we're blue in the face. And I love it when people get saved and I love it when they get baptized.
but the reality is is that that's a good thing and it's great for them individually but the world is is changed whenever disciples are made when people get grounded in the word of god when people get committed to their service of him when people open their hearts continually and are willing for the Holy Spirit of God to speak to them. The reality is, is that there's enough truth preached by me and others from this pulpit that I would never have to even think about going and confronting anyone in the church personally on a one-on-one -on -one basis about some sin in their life if we just surrendered to what the Holy Spirit talked to us about from here. It would be unnecessary. That's God's initial plan. That's his preferred way to work. But when we rebel, when we harden ourselves, then there's another step and another step. Remember what Jesus said about the church in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27, that he is in verse the preceding verse in 26 when he talked about uh, that it's cleansing by the washing of the word. For what purpose? That he might present for himself a glorious bride. God can't work effectively through the church if the church is corrupt. The world is not wrong when they look in and say that the church is full of hypocrites. The church is not wrong whenever they look in the church and say, uh, you know, I, I, can, I can point off uh, the leader of churches after leader of church after leader of church in my lifetime that has had all kinds of failures that have removed them even from ministry. But that does not change the fact that Jesus Christ established his church. Amen. And that church is authoritative. And that church is his mechanism of our service and it has been given authority. Paul said and when he wrote the Thessalonians that he was put in trust with the gospel and we'll see in our study through Timothy that the church also was entrusted with the truth, the gospel. It is the pillar and the ground of truth. I'm not for corruption. I think it needs to be rooted out whenever uh, biblical leaders are in, in the wrong. They need, to, they need to step back. In some cases they need to step down and they need to let cleansing happen but the same is true on this side. We all have an obligation to walk with God. We all have an obligation to walk in pureness and holiness. We all have an obligation to be humbled and, and, uh, and surrendered to God's leading and working in our heart. We all have a responsibility when conviction of the Holy Spirit comes to not sear our conscience, as not to not close our heart off, but to respond and to be tender and to be moldable in the hand of our Savior. It's our Christian duty and obligation, and it ought not have to be done out of duty and obligation. It ought to be done out of love. Lord, you've given me such a great, wonderful gift that cost you so much. And I value it because you paid so much for it. My granddaughters came to spend the night Friday. And they brought, with a, they brought with them a gift. It's a bag of cinnamon bread that my daughter-in-law made. It was special. It was delicious. But it was only valuable for those two things. It was an expression of love and it tasted good. The cost wasn't great. Just a little time, a little flour, a little cinnamon and sugar, a little yeast. Then there are gifts that have a lot of costs, but I remember years ago when I was working on staff at a church in Tennessee, and a wealthy businessman had moved from the Houston area to that church. And he wanted to make a big deal out of the pastors. I don't remember if it was his anniversary or if it was a wedding anniversary or his anniversary at the church or his birthday. I don't remember. But it was a significant number. And so the guy rented out a big um, paddle boat on the Tennessee River down in Chattanooga. And he bought the entire church's dinner on this paddle boat, take a cruise down the Tennessee River from Chattanooga to honor the pastor. And when he got back, he pulled up in a brand new, whatever year it was, Ford Expedition. And gave him the keys. He probably on that night, between the expedition and the boat, spent about 10 grand, or 60 grand. You know what, to him, that was like me spending $60. To everybody there, they look and like, oh, wow. And everybody knew where it came from. And the intention, I hope, was good. And it was overwhelming expression. But it really didn't have 
the same value as if it had been given by the sacrifice of all of the church collectively. Or if someone had just saved away and wanted to express. Now I'm not saying that things like that necessarily should, need to, or have to be done unless God directs you to do something for somebody. My point is this. If it, if it doesn't cost me a lot, no matter how much it looks like it costs to the outside world, it's not that valuable. I mean, honestly, for that guy, it was just a tax write-off. He made several million dollars a year. He needed a tax write-off. And he found a way to express some genuine feelings towards someone that had impacted his life. But then there's somebody that gives something that maybe to the world looks insignificant but costs them everything. That gift may not look like it means a whole lot to anybody else, but to the one that received it and understood the cost and the sacrifice that was involved, it means the world. And to the world, they look at what we have in the church and they look at what we have in Jesus Christ and they look at what we have in responsibility of the gospel. And it seems shallow and it seems silly and it seems like a waste of time and energy. But as God's children, we have the wonderful vision and the wonderful vantage point of understanding the sacrifice that God made. Sending his son to the earth to become human, to bear on himself the sin, the weight of the sin of all humanity. We have the wonderful vantage point of understanding that God gave everything to correct our sin and to give us an abundant life and to use us to bring others to him. And if I close my heart to that, I'm missing out on a wonderful gift from God, the gift of his church. I don't want to avoid it. I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to excuse myself from its authority in my life or its avenue of service that it's provided me. I want to embrace it. Because when I embrace the gift that Jesus gave me, I'm embracing Jesus.